Well, let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Let's begin reading with verse 10, and we're going to read down through verse 20. And in this, we'll cover some of the reasons as to why we're to put on the armor. Then it will tell us to put on the armor and the particular pieces of the armor for us. Let's begin reading with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. And having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Again, I call your attention to verse 14, which is what we began last week. Where, let's see, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. So the first piece of the armor of God that we're to put on that is listed here in our exposition or in this passage, it tells us here is to have our loins girt about with truth. So this is the first piece of armor then that the Apostle Paul directs us to take notice of. Now again, uh, not just to go through this very quickly, the reason why we're to do this is because you and I are in a battle. Uh, The battlefield, of course, is where Satan's at, and it's in this world that we're in. We are truly on the narrow road if we are Christians, but that narrow road does lie within the passageway of the world itself. And thus, if we get off on the left hand, we get off off the right hand, we're going to be in trouble. But as well, we know, too, that in many times in the very way itself, there comes the stumbling blocks, the, the temptations, the wiles of the devil, all of that we are to, he says here, beginning in verse 11, we're to stand against. And remember that why? Because we're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but with principalities against powers and so forth. And then he tells us again in verse 13 to take then the whole armor of God so that we will be able to withstand in that evil day. So the idea here then is not just to take up a piece of armor, which would be what we would think we need to take up the whole armor of God. And when we do that, then our duty then is to stand. And again, he makes that note in verse 14, stand therefore. So we are to stand and to stand and to withstand and then to stand some more in all that we're doing in this. And we began then last Lord's Day looking at the particular piece that's found in verse 14, having your loins girt about with truth. 
We made mention the loins was, of course, your waist area. And the idea in biblical times, we didn't wear jeans, that sort of thing. They wore robes. And so for man to be able to fight properly, to be able to move, do the maneuvers that he needs to do, he would literally take up his clothing, as it were, and gird them close to his waist so that then he would have more free movement. Well, the apostle here uses this analogy to remind us that's what we're to do. We're to gird up the loins with truth. And we went over to First Peter and we see that what that is dealing with, of course, is our minds. We are to gird up the loins of our mind. That is, we're to take all of this and to be very serious minded. And we're to gird it up, notice there, with the truth. And we said, what's that? Not asking what's the truth in the way that Pilate asked it there in John's account, but just to define what is truth. Well, first and foremost, truth is the Word of God. Jesus told us in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them with thy truth. Thy Word is truth. As Christians, and I'm speaking for myself here, and I hope to speak for everyone else. The Bible we have in our laps or the Bible that's on my desk here is the Word of God. I believe that wholeheartedly. If I did not, I would just forget it and go home. I would see no reason for continuing on. I see this to be the very truth of God. If I can't trust it, then where can I turn? To man's wisdom? Well, that's a joke. I mean, who could trust that? If you can't trust what the Bible says is true, how can you trust someone who by nature is a liar? And we know that God is not. So, that's one aspect of what truth. But I don't think the Apostle Paul is speaking here of the Bible itself or the, or the Word of God because he does mention that as another piece up in verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So he's not using the word of God here or the truth here, meaning the particular passages of the word of God, the words themselves. But I think he's dealing with it in the sense of truth and as a system or what we would call doctrine or teaching. And if you'll notice, we'll get into this tonight, Lord willing, when we deal with the second piece. You notice that there, this is, uh, and he says, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. That's the only time. We see something connected in this sense, in this, uh, in this passage. Truth and then the breastplate of righteousness, which of course we're going to discern tonight to be the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is a very gracious and wonderful doctrine. The doctrine of justification by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So he, as it were, begins this idea of truth with speaking of it then as a system of, of or an idea or a form or of knowledge of teaching or the Bible calls it a doctrine. And that's what we looked at last week. We showed you several passages of Scripture that doctrine or teaching is an orderly way of laying out the truth. It's still the Word of God we're dealing with, but we're taking the Word of God and we're dealing with it in such a way that it can be understood in particular areas or particular things. And as I said last time, uh, in days gone by, theology, though it's taken a bum rap today, theology used to be called the queen of sciences because they recognized that the truth can be systematized. Truth can be put in an orderly fashion so that you and I can understand it. For instance, the Bible does talk about the doctrine of Christ. If any man have not the doctrine of Christ, he's not a Christian. 
So whatever that may mean, doctrine of Christ, it goes to show us there are some teachings that regards Jesus Christ. We cannot and should not ignore any of the teaching or the word of God in regards to the Lord Jesus. But just use that as an example. There is the doctrine or the other word teaching of Christ. Uh, so, and also on the day of Pentecost, you remember what they continued in? According to Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So there again is the word truth used in that particular fashion. Well, that's as far as we got last week. And uh, let me just sum this up very quick because I had someone after me because I probably clouded all that more than I needed to. I have a way when I expound Scripture. I make it seem sometimes more difficult than what the verse actually said. But what I was just trying to say is that it is our duty to think biblically minded and to think doctrinally. I was talking to Brock yesterday and we were talking about how that, you know, people make fun of the Christian because, you know, they say, well, you need to get out of your box and think about the realities of things. No, what the Christian needs to do is to stay within that box, that is the word of God, and then judge all things by it. Let the world say what they will about us. I'm not moving, or I hope not to move, away from the box, as it were, of the Word of God. Anything and everything ought to be judged by this truth. And I cannot do so if I do not systematize or put in some orderly fashion or some form the Word of God. And that's what he's dealing with here. So, We saw several things. First of all, in order to profit us, we said we must know what this means. What does it mean by the loins? That's what we looked at last week. We said what was the truth. And then this morning, we want to pick up with this thought. Thirdly, then, to gird up would mean then to gather up our thoughts in the truths of God's Word. And by this, brethren, we simply mean we are to discipline our minds with the truth. So often, we are so busy about filling it up with unprofitable things that we cannot make right judgments upon issues because we don't have enough word or enough Bible or enough doctrine in us to determine what's right and what's wrong. So our duty then, brethren, is to discipline or to teach our minds and to have our minds gird up, as Paul uses the analogy here, with the truth of the Word of God in a systematized fashion. Which is the opposite then of having our thoughts loose, having our thoughts uncontrolled, having them filled with unprofitable things. You remember, we were talking about the picture of the man girding up his clothes. He keeps them close together. Well, you see, God doesn't want us to be mindless In our Christianity, the world would like that because then we wouldn't have anything to tell them. We would be just bouncing off from one thing to the other. You see, the world wants a mindless Christianity. Lazy Christians want some mindless Christianity. But brethren, God expects us to use our, and I'm using this word phrase carefully, sanctified reasoning powers that are sanctified by the Word of God, and they're to be put to use in His kingdom. 
They're to be put to use in our battle against the wiles of the devil. Because we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, as he tells us there. We wrestle with principalities and powers, spiritual realities. And if we are expecting to win some headway in our battle against Satan and his wiles and his devices, brethren, you cannot be a dummy, to put it simply. You cannot be doctrinally ignorant. And this is why down through the ages, and this is not against sola scriptura, people just misunderstand sola scriptura or whatever, but there's nothing wrong and we can see the benefit of confessions. Taking the word of God and putting them in an orderly fashion. Paul said, I believe, therefore, I speak. That is, the things I believe, that I have an understanding about, truths, I speak them. And you want to say you write them, it doesn't make any difference. The point of the matter is, you're communicating. And that's why, by the way, we do use here the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Because we do believe, it's not perfect, we don't believe that, but we do believe it is a good summary of some of the major doctrines of the Word of God. And no, we're not going to get rid of it. We're going to keep it. We do think it is very fitting in telling the world what we believe. You say, well, why don't you just tell them you believe the Bible? Because every Tom, Dick, and Jehovah Witnesses tell us that they believe the Bible, don't they? Does it mean anything? No. It's great. We believe the Bible. But what does it mean when you say you believe the Bible? There's even arguments, we were talking about this last week, there's even arguments as to what is the Bible. Does not Rome believe differently about us than what about Scripture? Sure they do. They don't believe like we do, according to our confession, that there are 66 books of the Bible, and then our confession wisely names them. What do they include? They include the Apocrypha, don't they? They believe that that is truly part of Holy Writ. That they, it too was given by inspiration of God. Well, do we believe that? Well, I hope you do not. We believe our present un- Bible that we have in our laps and hands, marker on the floor, is the Word of God. It is the complete Word of God. And thus we argue everything from that point. Our confessions, or we hope, are taken from that very point. See, that's not against sola scriptura. That's exactly what sola scriptura means. That the Bible is the final and sole authority of everything. Whether it be confessions or what you say. Can you imagine? I've used this against folks who have this pious attitude. We don't need confessions. You know, I just want to be... We just use the Bible. Okay, well then I'll begin to ask you, what do you believe about Genesis 1-1? What do you believe about Genesis 1-2? What do you believe about Genesis 1-3? And then finally, we'll get to Revelation 22. Do you think people are really going to do that? No. So what do we do? We sum up with truth what the particular things of the Bible say. And brethren... Back to the point, that was just the illustration. We need to be an army of God's people who recognizes that we are commanded to have our loins or our minds girded up with 
truth. Our minds are to be saturated by the truths of God's word, whether individual verses or whether the what the verses mean and teach. That's doctrine. The idea, well, that's what the Bible says. That's what it means. Not necessarily. God so loved the world may may think seem to mean he loves every everybody. But we know that's not what the word there means, does it? So you see, it has to be interpreted. And that's not anything wrong with that. That is just everything is to be looked at that way. But the point of the matter is, brethren, we have to be a disciplined army to do that. Our minds are to be saturated with the truth. If we are expected to fight against the wiles of the devil and to stand against him, we cannot be ignorant of God's truth. Because when we are, and if we do, then we are ready to fall into one of Satan's snares. It's not the strong-minded Christian who gives way to the cults of our day. It's not the strong-minded Christian who takes every error, every error that comes down and believes it. It's not the saint who has studied in the Bible and knows his theology that will fall prey to strange theology that's not taught in the Word of God. But it is the immature Christian who is ignorant that will be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And our duty then, brethren, as we find it in the Word of God, is to be knowledgeable of God's truth so that we will be able, first of all, to know which pathway even to follow. And then when those obstacles do come in our pathway, we will be able to recognize them as obstacles and stumbling blocks and potholes, as we mentioned last week. Then the fourth thing we want to deal with is that the girding up of the loins with the truth is filling our minds with the truth. In other words, keeping before us the truths of God's Word. Now, this doesn't mean you go out the door and you think, Jesus is God. That's doctrine number one. Jesus is God. The Word of God is the Bible. That's that's not what we're talking about. If you do that, that's great. (laughs) But also, I wouldn't want someone who's a doctor practicing on me and he's doing surgery and he's thinking in his mind, Jesus is God. And he's starting to cut everything but what he needs to be cutting. I, you know, that's not, the point of the matter is, is that when we go out to battle, this we've already been girded with this stuff. You don't get on the battlefield and start fighting and go, whoops, I don't have a piece of armor. Let me run back to my tent and put it on. No, we're to already be that way. If you're going to follow the analogy of all of this. Our minds are to be saturated and disciplined again with biblical truth. And so the mind and the truth then are the two areas that Paul speaks of basically here in verse 14. You remember the, the greatest commandment in the Bible? What is it? To love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind and all that sort of thing. So not only is God to be loved in that, the heart and emotions, affections and all about us, but even our minds. For to love God with our minds means that we will be willing to be submitted to the teachings 
of God. Go back to Deuteronomy 6. By the way, you know, that's where that greatest commandment comes from, don't you? It comes from Deuteronomy 6. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, see, that's a doctrine. God's not three, there's not three gods, not three lords, three Jehovah's. There's one. That's a teaching of Scripture. It runs all throughout the Word of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, that thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be, when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged, and thou, that, that which dig, thou diggedest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So we see here that after Moses, Moses gives these words, he directs the fathers then to do what? Teach the children. And he's telling us in order to love God, this is how we do so. From the instruction, the teaching from God's Word. Now, the mind, brethren, is one of those central things in the regenerate heart. I'm not speaking technically here, but the thing that distinguishes us from the old man or what we used to be is the renewed heart and mind. Look in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. In verse 17, uh, excuse me, yeah. chapter 4, he says, This is how we used to be. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. How? In the vanity of their mind. This was a head thing. Having the understanding, there again, darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, he's going to contrast, but ye have not so learned Christ. You didn't, he didn't teach you to live that way. If so, be that ye have heard and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That ye put off, this is something we did in regeneration, that ye put off the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your what? Your mind. And that ye put on the new man, which was after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, go over. To Colossians 3, and Paul expounds on that in verse 10. 
and have put on, again, this is past tense, this is what you did. This is not a exhortation to do it. He's telling you this is what you've done. And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So what's God dealing here with? The head, the knowledge, the understanding. And one of the things that distinguishes us from the old life is now we have a mind that has been renewed by the grace of Almighty God. And brethren, so one of the, Paul here in this figurative language gives us of the first piece of the armor to the Christian life is to put on as this. Gird up the loins of your mind. Do so with the truth. Again, it's not a virtue to be ignorant. As highly as it is proclaimed today in Christian circles, just give me Jesus and Jesus only. It is not true. We are to have our minds filled with the truths of God's Word. So the weapon, brethren, or the defense against Satan that we are to wear, to put it simply, is biblical truth. The more we know the truth, the more then we grow in grace and in strength. And Paul comments about this all through his epistles. In fact, one of his prayers is that they will be thinking in this way and that God will enlighten their thinking, that God will strengthen them in the inner man. This is all that he's talking about here. And brethren, if we want to fight this battle successfully, and you need to gird up your loin of your minds with the truth. Again, the less we know, the more likely we are to be beguiled by Satan. And, you know, we think about cults and coming to the door and that kind of thing. You know, they know their doctrine. It's false, but they know their doctrine. We don't. And that's why we can be hoodwinked so easily. Because we don't know. We won't listen. We won't heed. We won't hear. We won't take the time to know the truths of Scripture. Another thing about truth rightly known and applied, it brings about strength and stability. The Bible talks about ignorance and error is what brings instability and weakness in the faith. Ephesians 4 Back up a couple of chapters, verse 14, he says, We ought to be uh, having the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man, being growing there. Verse 14, that we henceforth, here's why we should, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Notice two things in this passage is that he's pressing on to us to be a perfect man, mature, grow up. Why? So we won't be tossed about. And then there's one more thing. The third thing is this, that there are people out there who are willing to take advantage of you if you do not. Notice that by the slight of men. And cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. 
You see, not everybody's out there is on our side. Not everybody who stands in the pulpit and wears a tie and a coat or a collar of some sort is necessarily a Bible man. There are folks who are literally out there who lie in wait to deceive us. They're watching, looking for baby, immature, unknowledgeable Christians to snatch up and to grab. And brethren were fools to disregard this warning and not to take heed. It's the duty of every Christian. It's your duty, if you claim to be Christ, to be knowledgeable in truth and doctrine. And it's Satan's job, as he's taken it on to himself, to keep this from happening. You're falling prey to Satan when you do not take advantage of opportunities to know the Word of God. I told you how you remember that these pieces of armor are also hints as to how Satan will attack us. In other words, if I have a particular piece of armor on, I have it on for a reason. That's because that's where Satan will try to wound me. And thus, if we were to have our loins girt about with truth, then the point is that's where Satan will try to attack me. So what means then will he try to attack me in this area? Remember we said, you know, if I'm out on the, on the field, I'm driving around in my tank, the enemy isn't going to come up with a BB gun and try to kill me in the tank. Because the BB wouldn't penetrate the armor on the tank. So they will run and not get a BB gun, they will get some kind of an anti-tank weapon that will penetrate the several inches of armor that is surrounding me in that tank. Common sense, isn't it? To anybody who, except Christians, sometimes. So, brethren, think this way. What kind of armory, what kind of weapon then will Satan use to try to get through my armor of girding up the loins of my mind? So, what are the weapons he will use? I said we would deal with that kind of thing. Okay, first one is this. False teachers. Remember we already said that he has, there are men out there who are lying in wait to deceive. One of the weapons that Satan will use against us with this piece of armor is or are false teachers. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. And beginning in verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, mind you of Ephesians, doesn't it? Transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. So what weapon, or what is a weapon that Satan will use to fight against Christians who are seeking to uh, have their minds gird up with, uh, with truth? Well, he'll send false teachers. 
And aren't there plenty of them? We're warned that there are many false teachers. Jesus warns it. The Apostle John and his epistles warn it. Paul warns us of it. He warns the Ephesian elders of it. In Acts chapter 20, he says that even among your own selves will men rise up trying to snare and to take you away. So one of his weapons against us, then, our piece of armory, will be false teachers. Well, if you have false teachers, what do you have that go along with false teachers? False teaching. Ah, good. False teachers will bring us then false te- Not that everything they say is false, but just enough truth to get us going, get our ear, and then they bring in the error. The same passage in 2 Corinthians again. Chapter 11, look in beginning in verse 4. Would to God, now here, this is a plea here. Would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly. And indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, notice Paul has a fear about those brethren. I have a fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled, and the word there, children, beguiled, means to fool, to trick her. The serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety or craftiness. So your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if another If you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted. Tells us to beware, doesn't it? So what is it that false teachers bring with them? False teachings. So you mark it down. You find a false teacher, there's going to be false teaching. You find false teaching, you're going to have false teachers. And brethren, it's out there. Satan puts these things in the way. In order to snare us. And then he will use means to keep us from sound doctrine. That's another weapon. He will give us excuses as to why we don't need to be established in the truth. You know, that's the preacher's job. Let him study that. Well, that's a good excuse that Satan puts in our way, doesn't he? Yeah, that's what we pay the preacher for. That's why we have elders. And that's true, we do. But again... You are to take the word of God and you are to discern whether what we say or what we not say is the truth. You are to be noble Bereans about all of this. Now, God has given us, obviously, two particular things to help us in this. One is the ministry. He has given us elders, pastors. And he will, the devil then, will give us every excuse in the book for us not to attend upon a personal ministry. You ever known people who go to a bad church and you think, why do they go to a bad church? They'll, they even admit, well, there's really no good teaching there. I mean, there are a lot of nice people, but the pastor is either a woman or it's a man who doesn't know the truth. But, and they continually sit on it. And you wonder, Why? Well, because Satan has so got them fooled that the ministry is an optional thing. 
And if you read Ephesians 4, it is not optional. A good sound ministry is what our Lord went to heaven to give to His people. And that's a sound ministry. Another thing He's given us is personal study. I mentioned that earlier. You are to be noble Bereans. I could be feeding you a line. You won't know it unless you go study and find out. And then another thing He will do, fourthly, is that He will corrupt the foundation of truth. Now think about that a moment. One of the weapons He will use against us is to corrupt what we consider to be the very groundwork of everything. And what is that? The Bible. Is Satan into that? Well, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If he's not, at least others are. He is indirectly, obviously. 1 Corinthians 2.17. Oh, there isn't one. Oh, where am I at now? When you're typing on the typewriter, your finger hits the wrong number. Uh, it's 2 Corinthians, excuse me. 2 Corinthians. Change this from my memoirs. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17. This is Paul making a defense for himself. And he gets down to the nitty gritty, the basics. He says, For we are not as. Now notice it's not some. Or a few, for we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. So there are not a few, but there are many out there who will corrupt the Word of God. They will corrupt the Scriptures. Do we not see that today? All the Bible versions that are out. It's amazing. The English language has untold hundreds of English versions, and the rest of the world, they don't hardly have any. But we got tons. And they all don't say the same thing. Somebody has to be wrong. That's again, corrupting the foundation of the truth. Another way in which he will attack is to cause us to... If he can't corrupt your Bible and say, well, I know that's my Bible. Then he can also cause you then to doubt God's word. That was Satan's trick back in Genesis chapter 3, wasn't it? Yea... Hath God said, did God really say that, Eve? See, what was he doing? He was trying to implant a doubt upon, in Eve's mind, upon the veracity of what God had said, even if he said it at all. Did God really say that? Did he say that the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die? Did he really say that, Eve? Well, there again, there's Satan's trick, isn't it? Well, what's the defense then against it? Well, the defense against Satan's device is the truth. Check all by the word of truth, that is, the word of God. Well, let me give you some directions in closing, and then we'll go by waves of observation. First of all, as we mentioned, there are two areas of means of study and the increasing of knowledge or the ways in which we're to gird up our loins of our mind. I said one was the ministry, Ephesians 4, and then coming with thoughtful attention, giving giving during the public exposition of the Word of God. You may belong to a good church, but if you don't ever come and listen, it won't do you any good, will it? 
You come here and, as the modern people say, you're spaced. We would say you're thinking about other things. And sometimes that's how we are, aren't we? We come here and our minds are so full of everything else but what's going on. And brethren, trust me, I know it's, it's hard to concentrate on what's being preached. I can stand up here and my mind can be five miles away from my notes. Seriously, I could be thinking of other things when I'm sitting here talking about this very thing I'm talking about. It's amazing. I don't know how it can be done. But it can. So I know the temptation that lies there. But brethren, we have to fight that temptation of Satan to rob the Word of God out of our hearts. And that's one of his devices. Remember in the parable of the sower and the seed? The first seed that fell, it fell by a hard stony ground. What happened? It says the birds came by and picked it up. Jesus says that Satan's stealing the word out from under you. And some of us are guilty of that very thing because we let our minds wander. We don't pay attention. And thus Satan has taken the advantage of us by not paying attention. Secondly, I mentioned personal study. Again, taking time to review or to go over your personal devotions, family devotions, such as that. Secondly, uh, there ought to be a readiness to receive God's Word. We won't take time to go there. Acts 17, verses 11 and 12. There ought to be a searching, verse, uh, Acts 17, 11 and 12. And then there ought to be a heart to seek the truth. Do you really want to know it? Remember Herod, or excuse me, Pilate? What is truth? And then he turns around and walks off. He wasn't really interested, was he? So when we ask what is truth... Let us not be guilty of turning around and not looking at the very truth itself. We may have some philosophical idea, oh, what's truth? And then go about our daily business not caring what truth is. Seek it. Look in Proverbs chapter 2 and you see, not now, but you'll see a man who is diligent about seeking the truth. And then obedience to the truth. Psalm 111. Let me turn there because I don't know if I got the right passage again. Psalm 111, verse 10. Yeah. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and a good understanding have all they that do His commandments. Notice that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and a good understanding have all they that do His commandments. Don't think that you're some great theologian if you don't obey the Word of God. And far often we're too, we're always guilty of knowing more than we obey, don't we? But we won't pride ourselves, and we shouldn't pride ourselves anyway, but we, I'm using this in a bad sense. We'll pride ourselves in our knowledge. Paul calls that being puffed up. What a danger. Well, first of all, an application in closing by way of reproof. This is a reproof to those who feel that knowledge and understanding of God's Word is not important. It is important. Every piece of the armor is important. It won't do you any good to put on the breastplate of righteousness if you don't have your loins girt about with truth. 
Secondly, it's a reproof to the lazy and to the indifferent. It's a reproof both from the preacher down to the pew in all these areas. It's a reproof to those who think it's spiritual to be ignorant. And there are a number of folks like that. Hebrews says it's not. Hebrews 5 verse 11 He says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. He was talking about explaining to Melchizedek to them. And he says, you just can't handle it. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk, or not very skillful, is, or excuse me, not not deep things, is skill unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. And he describes what that means. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Brethren, this is an exhortation based on those who would think that it's spiritual to be ignorant. It's not. And then it's a reproof to those who come to public worship only to be entertained or to have their ears tickled. Secondly, Christian, how much time do you really give to God's Word? You say, well, I don't really have much time. I have work, I have family and needs of everyday life. And again, I'm not, I understand that and I'm not reproving that. I'm reprieving those who do not take the time and redeem it for these things. The Lord's Day, for instance, is a time to be in God's house so that you can have your minds enlightened by the truth of God. We have the morning sacrifice and we have the evening sacrifice, so to speak. And we need to be together. And we need to come and hear it. Thirdly, we need to understand that the knowledge of truth is important. It's what saves us for James 1.17. We're begotten by the word of truth. And it's what sanctifies us. Jesus said, sanctify them with thy truth. Thy word is truth. Fourthly, I think this speaks against those who are always trying to tell us that the Bible is too hard to understand. I don't read it because I can't get past the begotten and all that kind of nonsense. It's not true. God has written this Bible for man. He didn't write it for angels and people with higher thoughts. He's given it to us. The, Greek, the Bible in the original was written in the, uh, at least the New Testament, was written in common, everyday, what they call Koine Greek. Everyday language. Remember we said that the, uh, the three... Uh, languages above the on the sign above the cross was Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. It wasn't some special angelic language that they didn't know. He gave them a book or a Bible in which was written that they can understand. You can look that up. Proverbs eight verses eight and nine. Job twenty eight twenty eight. Psalm one ten and verse eleven and verse ten. Excuse me. And then fifthly, to the sinner here this morning who may be asking. Do I have to be a brain then to understand the Bible? The answer is no. What you must do is come to Christ. Leaving your sins and come to Him by faith for your salvation. The Scripture says, and this is life eternal. 
that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. See, we must know that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And He did so by living this perfect life before God. Going to the cross and with our sins upon Him and God shedding His blood and God punishing Him in the sinner's stead. Him becoming our surety and Him dying finally on the cross for our sin. Not for Him. He was guilty. He was innocent, excuse me, of all things. And then God took and He was buried and God rose Him the third day. Sinner, this is what you must know to be saved. And He will save all those who will come unto Him. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. There is a simplicity that is in Christ that men will beguile you from. And it's happening all the time. Listen tonight about the sermon on the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's what saves. That message. And it's not our works. It's Christ's.